gully rider, hill and gully, hill and gully rider, hill and gully. tune to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio on this Aloha Friday. I'm Catherine Cruz. At long last, the launch of a public works project our community has argued about for decades. Today, Skyline rolls out four days of free train rides for anyone curious enough and brave enough uh, to brave those uh, expected crowds over this holiday weekend. Uh, on hand for this morning's official blessing was former Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell. He flew in from Kona for the ceremony. He reflected on the long road to get to this point. He admitted he got beat up in the process over the decades, but he said it was worth it to see this day come. Well, one, I mean, it's an amazing day for me. You know, I think the journey has been a long one and a very tough one, but today is, it proves that it's been worthwhile. You know, I think back in the early, like, 2006 Josuki and I were the chair and vice chair of transportation, and we worked on a rezo to restart the debate on rail, and we formed a task force. Lingo was part of it. Jeremy Harris was part of it. I was a part of Josuki and others. And it was concluded we needed to build a new rail system, elevated, paid for through the excise tax. And so that got things off. And then we started looking at raising the money first because the FDA said the Honolulu rule now is because the other two times it failed is when you had to come up with the money. There wasn't the support. You show us the money first. And so we worked on the excise tax. I was the majority leader then with Mufi Hanneman. And then when I was finished in the House after six years, worked on the uh, referendum, you know, to vote on the rail system and got that passed and then became the managing director of the city and county of Honolulu under Mufi Hanneman, then acting mayor, and, you know, worked on the original contracts to get the project started and then ran three times on rail. The first time I lost to Carlisle, the next two times I won against anti-rail candidate Governor Cayetano and Congressman DeJoux. Very close elections both times. And then had to go to the House and Senate twice for additional funding for rail and got pounded. Yes, you did. You did. But it's worth it. It's all worth it because we're now talking about a system that's going to serve generations and generations of people on the island of Oahu. It's going to create transportation equity for folks who can't afford to drive in and, and park in places like Waikiki. And it's going to create an alternative to traveling by vehicles, which means it's going to help fight our warming planet because it's run by electricity and more and more electricity is being generated by sun and wind on Oahu and even more will in the future. So it's green, it's transportation equity, and it's going to encourage development along the rail corridor, and that's going to be more efficient in terms of use of energy, hopefully provide more affordable housing. So every challenge, every hit that we took has been worth it, and we'll see it in fruition today. I had the opportunity to jump on earlier this week, and I was with a family from Couple Day, and one of the gals was celebrating her birthday, and so she had her family there with her. And there were two little children on there, maybe 10 years old, a little boy and a little girl. And they were so excited. And I was so happy to see their reaction to being on that train as, you know, it moved toward, you know, couple A toward the end of the the line. And I have to admit, at the end, when we came back to the stadium, I was sad because I really wanted it to go further and just knowing that it's going to be a while before we get to Ala Moana, but just the sheer joy of those children really made that trip. You know, Catherine, I think about that and I've talked in the past, I say someday, some teenager in Waipahu, my hometown will get on a train with his surfboard, tell his mom, I'm going to go to Ala Moana Bowls to go surfing. I'll be back this afternoon. The train has surf racks. I, I understand it's the only system that has surf racks built in the world. And, you know, he'll go surfing. And he won't even think twice about it. It'll be just something you do. But that is a great dramatic change in how people will live here. And, you know, change is difficult. And I think that's why there was a lot of opposition all the way along. because It's something they've never seen before. But today and going forward, people are going to get on the train. They're going to realize how they can use this train. And I think they're going to say, we want to see it get further. And absolutely, this mayor and future mayors 
need to get back to the legislature. They need to work on getting additional funding. It's not just about talk. It's about walking it. And you can't wait too long because as they issue the bids to get to the city center, Hart will start to change from a project development kind of system to completing it and ending it. And they need to be looking at issuing more bids for getting to Alamoana. Absolutely. Because as you know, Catherine, the last 4.2 miles is where most of the ridership is. So they've built the next two. They have another two to get the ridership to a level where the fare box revenue is sufficient you know, to support the system plus subsidy. And so they need to get that far. And they need to get the Kamakana Ali, and they need to get up to the UH. And in the future, it'll go to other places too. And those two 10-year-olds you talked about who are riding the train with you, perhaps when they're middle-aged, they will see these systems going to other areas. This is how rail systems are built all around the world. When I talked to those children, they said the only thing they had been on was the Pearl Ridge monorail. You know, yeah. so part of their delight was the fact that this was a, um, a modern train and it was neat to see their neighborhoods from up above. I noticed, oh, gosh, you know, you go through Waipahu and Pearl City area, you see where the mango trees are in your neighborhood. You know, somebody else said, well, I noticed where the homeless are tucked away. So that was fascinating just to get that bird's eye view, uh, which, by the way, um, Manu Oku, I know, is their symbol. And that's. Honolulu's official bird? Bird, yeah. No, I think it's great that they talk about the Mana'oku, and it's as related to rail now, and I like that. Again, for me, when you talk about the Mana'oku, you're talking about sustainability. You know, you have these birds that thrive in the urban core and the monkey pod trees around the Hale and around the state capital, and rail is about thriving. On a small island, it's about allowing people to live close together. I equate it to getting on a canoe. You know, when you travel together, in a train, you see each other. I think people are going to see how it is when you commute up on the continent. You start to see the same people if you're going to work at the same time. They become your acquaintances, a better way to move and a better way to show aloha to each other. And I think that's just going to be what the future is for the crowded south shore of our island. That was former Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell talking to us as he reflected uh, to get this rail project to this point. We will continue our conversation with him right after a break. Support for HPR comes from UHA Health Insurance with its one plan designed for small businesses featuring comprehensive coverage including fitness. Learn more at uhahealth.com. Is this the little girl I carried? On the next Fresh Air, we remember lyricist Sheldon Harnick, who along with composer Jerry Bach wrote the musicals Fiddler on the Roof, Fiorello, and She Loves Me. Harnick died last week at the age of 99. We'll hear excerpts of several of our interviews with him. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for the conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Former Mayor Kirk Caldwell took part in the formal opening of Honolulu's rail system this morning. VIP guests are riding the mass transit system now before Skyline opens to the general public at 2 p.m. today. We talked to Caldwell about his thoughts as we hit this milestone in Hawaii's most expensive public works project to date. Well, I can't wait for it to go to the airport. I was in D.C. this summer and was able to take the train from 
Dulles straight into, you know, a block from my hotel. And I know that leg was just recently added. Lots of controversy there, too. And people yes. were relieved that, you know, finally it's done. Yeah, the day that they can uh, uh, get this uh, through the airport area, I think, you know, that'll increase the ridership. And uh, I just was talking this morning to someone over at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, you know, about the shipyard workers and the systems that they've got in place there. You know, they're going to provide a shuttle. They're going to subsidize the transportation fee, you know, to, to buy a holo card just to get more of those workers out of their cars on rail. And hopefully that will free up some space on the freeway for others. I think you're absolutely right. That will happen. It doesn't mean that congestion will be eliminated, but it gives people who don't want to sit in congestion a chance to get out of it. Perhaps others will get in a car and, and drive and, and have to sit in traffic. But my hope is more will choose the right rail. You know, I think today you're as you're talking you know, I had someone pick me up, my good friend, Gary Kurokawa, former chief of staff, and Melissa Miranda Johnson, who was my assistant. And they drove me here. We're sitting in the parking lot of Aloha Stadium. But if the rail was going to the airport, I would have gotten off at the Inner Island Terminal, walked into the station, and been here in like less than 10 minutes without having to get in a car or be on the road. That's a better way to travel. And I think you're absolutely right. Once it gets to the airport, more people are going to see the benefit. And as it heads towards town, towards downtown, you're going to see all these people who want to go to the neighbor islands on a long weekend. Like this weekend is kind of a long weekend. And instead of worrying about parking at the airport, they can park downtown in their office buildings, get on the train, hop, skip, and a jump with their bags, get off, and fly off to the neighbor islands. There's just going to be so many different ways they're going to use this system even if they live on the windward side. We see this as a game changer. It yes. may be a while before it gets to major employment centers into Waikiki, through the airport, that kind of thing, and extended to uh, the University of Hawaii. But you were on the train. What were your thoughts when you got to see and ride it for the first time? You know, my thoughts were about the people who are going to be getting on this train, people who work two and three jobs to live on the South Shore, in places like Eva, where the train goes, more affordable housing out there, although not really that affordable. And it's going to allow them to get to work quicker so they can get home and be with their families for a longer period of time before they go to their next job. And that's why I mentioned transportation equity. I just think it's going to provide so much opportunity for those who struggle to make ends meet here. And, you know, I thought about those people. Now, when I was on the train, there were very few people. But like you said, when you were on it, you saw a family from Waipahu riding. I'm thinking about those kinds of people who are going to really benefit from the system and allow them to be home with their families for longer periods of time or at work being productive so that they can get back home and not have to sit in, a, in traffic for an hour and a half or well, two hours. When I got off the train and it was late in the day, I got into my car, drove on the freeway back to East Honolulu, and looked on the other side, westbound, and it was just solid, packed of cars, people heading home, and I felt for them. Uh, you know, and I know we hear a lot from folks across the island who say, I'm not going to be able to ride this, you know, and I've been paying for it, and they're, and they're, and they're pretty upset about it. Uh, and it is costing a lot of money. I mean, I'll admit I'm one of the taxpayers who's mad because it's, it's yeah. costing so much and it took so long. Uh, and yet I see, I understand the equity part. Yeah. We do have H3 and, you know, uh, I don't take H3 very much, but I'm paying for it. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, major infrastructure projects around this country and around the world actually end up costing much more and taking much longer to build. But once built... If you amortize the cost, even at, even at the higher cost, over you know, 50, 60 years, the investment is extremely worthwhile. But for those who are going through it as it's being built and helping fund it, it is extremely frustrating, and I understand that. But I think to give up, you know, for me, you know, we never gave up. Our administration fought hard every step of the way, including to the last very few days of, of my administration when we were dealing with the Triple P and trying to get that done and wrapped up. So the new mayor could come in with a clean slate, not have to deal with the problems. It was worth, it's absolutely worth it, including the investment. But I understand your frustration and it's totally valid. But think 20 years from now, no one will be talking about those, those cost increases or delays be, 
because it'll be passed. It's kind of like H3. You know, most people who were around in the 80s when it was being built are frustrated, but so many take the, the H3 now between the windward side and, and the south shore, and they don't think for a moment about the controversy of the past. And that was the most expensive freeway by by square, by by I think by foot of any system built in our country. One of the transit workers that I talked to uh, after my ride said she was a young child when they were building that, and her parents used to, you know, take her hiking up in that area. And so she watched yeah. the progress of that being built, and she said she was so excited when it opened, and was glad that they did build it. It is beautiful. I have. To, I mean, I don't take it often, like you said, but when I do. It's beautiful. As you get up into the valley and come through the tunnel, it's it's as beautiful as any place in the world, I think. You know, I'm glad they built it. And it goes right by Stairway to Heaven, which I believe they should keep. Another conversation for another day. And another <laughs> conversation for another time. Well, Mayor, anything else you want to say uh, to the critics out there uh, at this juncture? I don't know about the critics, but, you know, as we're sitting here talking, you know, I think about Senator Noy and his efforts to get this project done, going back. 50 years, you know, always wanted to see a rail system. I think of Mayor Blaisdell, who, you know, talked about it, Frank Fossey. There are so many people who are part of this vision and part of this dream who are not with us today, but I think they would be extremely happy to see that their dreams, very, very big dreams, survived through many administrations, both governors and mayors, to this day. And I think, like any major infrastructure project, it stained the course through change, through administrations, as difficult as it gets, you keep plowing forward and you can build these systems that continue to serve for generations in the future. And I, you know, I think it's, it's a legacy to them and their dreams. Well, I hope I'm still alive when the station reaches Ala Moana. You know, I just remember the days of taking the express bus from uh, Palisades, you know, and that took me straight down to Ala Moana Shopping Center. So I'm looking forward to the day that uh, rail goes to that point. I am too, and perhaps we can ride it together. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Mayor. Yeah. And, uh, thank you, Catherine. Safe travels. Yep. Talk to you again. That was former Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell reflecting on what it took to get to this point of the rail project, 11 miles of guideway and nine stations. Completion to the urban core is still many years away. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. If you know local music history, you just might know the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Hawaii Ponoi is widely recognized as our state's anthem. It was written in 1874 by King David Kalakaua with music composed by Captain Henry Berger, then the King's Royal Bandmaster. The song was adopted as the King of Hawaii's National Anthem in 1876 and also used for the Republic of Hawaii. The title of the song translates to Hawaii's own and the melody is reminiscent of God Save the Queen, the United Kingdom's National Anthem. Take a listen. Today, Hawaii Ponoi is commonly sung at sporting events in the Aloha State immediately after the Star-Spangled Banner. You probably know the lyrics by heart, but you might not know it wasn't always the Kingdom of Hawaii's national anthem. Ten years earlier, the monarchy adopted a song composed by Queen Liliu Okalani as its national anthem. 
For today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of Hawaii's national anthem immediately before it was replaced by Hawaii Ponoi? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. Pick up a reusable HPR tote bag if you're the first one to get it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Today, pop music is way more varied. And yet, Hollywood can't seem to let go of these 2,000 stars and the way we treated them. Why do we keep going back to that moment in pop history where women didn't get to express themselves in their music when they arguably do now? Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. For a reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about a federal investigation underway involving a local defense contractor. Reporter Nick Ruby joins us from Washington, D.C. with the latest. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Yes. So this story involves uh, a company, I guess a, a number of companies uh, under the Dawson, Dawson brand. Correct. Yeah. So um, Dawson is a relatively well-known company in the world of government contracting. It's a uh, it's what's known as a Native Hawaiian organization, or as a part of a Native Hawaiian organization uh, that goes by the name of the Hawaiian Native Corporation. And as such, uh, it it has a special designation under federal contracting law that allows it to get sole source contracts. And some of these contracts can be worth millions and millions of dollars. And over the years, uh, Dawson has received millions of dollars in contracts to do all sorts of work, uh, ranging from cybersecurity to uh, building maintenance. Um, but this week, what we found out, what we learned at Civil Beat, was that federal agents have taken an interest in Dawson and, in fact, executed a search warrant at their Honolulu offices. Um, downtown. And there's a lot that we actually don't know about the federal investigation in, that's involving this company, but there are a handful of things that we do know. And well, some of those things include the fact that they executed the search warrant, they seized computers and cell phones, and that the employees who were there were surprised that they saw federal agents descending on their offices, and, and uh, many of them had sort of described the operation as a, as a raid. Um, and Dawson itself has told us that they are cooperating with the government's efforts uh, to obtain information for their investigation. And the companies, they're not just here in Honolulu. Correct. So Dawson... Uh, it's a native Hawaii. It's a group of native Hawaiian-owned uh, companies, but they have grown exponentially over the years, and they have offices located across the country. They operate in many different states, um, uh, forty-plus different states. They do work in foreign countries. Um, they're they're really big players in the defense contracting world. And you had mentioned sole source contracting. I mean, because they have this minority status, so what, they don't have to bid with others? How does that work? So it's a little complicated, mm -hmm. but in general, the Small Business Administration has created a program 
for uh, what are known as minority or disadvantaged uh, businesses. And there's a specific classification of that that is dedicated to uh, Native organizations, whether they are Alaska Native, um, American Indian tribes, or uh, Native Hawaiian organizations. And those so-called Native 8A programs, 8A, of course, is the name of it under the SBA. Uh, sounds wonky, I know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the shorthand for it. So these, these Native 8A corporations are granted a special status uh, to, to get sole source contracts, meaning, again, they don't have to bid for any of, any of the work uh, in certain cases. And um, as, in, in exchange for that, they are supposed to sort of give back to their own communities. Um, and Dawson does this, for instance, by paying for light installations at Iolani Palace or uh, giving money to the Polynesian um, Voyaging Society for Hopulea or helping to do the broadcast of the Merry Monarch Festival over on the Big Island. Yeah, and they, I think believe they were a, a sponsor for the uh, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, that conference they had in Vegas as well. Yeah, that's not surprising. I mean, many of these uh, Native Hawaiian organizations, and there are many that, that operate um, in Hawaii and elsewhere across the country, uh, that is part of what they are required to do under this special uh, Native 8A program. And uh, Dawson uh, Companies is headed by Chris Dawson, uh, but any of the other offices are willing to share, you know, any more about this raid? Well, the company itself has been pretty tight-lipped about everything that's been going on. Um, I uh, placed many, many phone calls uh, over the past few days trying to chase this thing down and even drove out to one of their offices that was close by in Virginia. Um, I knocked on the door, rang the doorbell. Somebody answered and gave me the same answer I'd heard from a lot of other people, and that was to contact their communications team via email. All right. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what develops out of this. Uh, but thanks so much, Nick. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, that was reporter Nick Ruby with today's Reality Check. In full disclosure, Dawson is an underwriter of HPR. To read Nick's full story, visit civilbeat.org. That the universe gives you way more than you deserve. And when it is for like shooting stars. All this week, we've been highlighting the good work that is underway at our seed banks across the state, from the National Tropical Botanical Garden on Kauai to the Department of Defense's seed bank at Schofield Bar- uh, Barracks Army Base to Lion Arboretum in Manoa Valley. It's where unsung heroes are toiling away in the name of science and conservation. Today we wind up Seed Bank Week with a look at the Hawaii Island Seed Bank in Kona. While the earlier banks focus on research and rare plants, the Big Island facility holds seeds for food and it actually sells them. Jill Wagner is the founder of the Seed Bank and has worked with restoration projects for the past three decades. I started the Seed Bank in 2008 and to, uh, with a grant from Hawaii Wildfire Organization. And that was to, to collect common native seeds as a mitigation for wildfire. So I really started collecting common natives where some of the other organizations and institutions were doing research or collecting the most rare seeds in Hawaii. A little different focus. And you also sell seeds. So that's really yes. a, a way to be able to get these seeds in the hands of landowners or, you know, or farmers. That's correct. And we try to sell common natives. So people can grow native species in their properties. But also, we have a partnership with the Hawaii Public Seed Initiative, which is a group of farmers throughout the state, not only Hawaii Island, but through the whole state, who grow Hawaii-adapted food crop. And we take care of their seeds, and they have a website, and they also sell very good quality food crop seeds. And you were talking about the different corns and things. They do that, and it's so amazing. It's really a wonderful thing for our community to have. Because otherwise, if you buy seed, you're buying it from the mainland, and it's not really the highest performing because it wasn't grown here. 
Well, I recall a time when I was fortunate enough to go out in the field and go into the laboratory of Jim Brubaker, who did lots of research on corn seed and and was instrumental uh, in the industry as it is today. Uh, And I was just so in awe of his knowledge. And I remember he'd said, oh, yes, uh, one of our research students, we had a a seed, Sweet Sarah, number 16, I think, or something like that. And that was a seed that you could buy at CETAR, at the seed lab in Manoa, because they just found that it it just was a wonderful uh, type of seed to grow here. Yes, that's right. And so farmers that do that kind of work and, you know, figure out, they do breeding, they figure out which crops are, are really good, are really providing a tremendous service for our sustainability, our food sustainability in Hawaii, and our ability to, you know, take care of ourselves. So it's really, really important. And I was just on the website for the UH Seed Lab at CTAR, and, and they have are running out of seeds. They're very limited with what they can provide the community. And I know there are some retirements in the future. And so you worry about the future of that lab and the fact that those opportunities may be limited in the future. That's right. And that's why I think groups like the Hawaii Public Seed Initiative who have stepped up for precisely that reason, they they really want to keep it going with these food crop seeds. And they are dedicated to growing. And it's, it's really neat because different farmers find what grows well for them. And so they focus on that. And so there's a huge range of seeds that they offer. And they offer the stuff that it does really well. So it's great. And talk about your facility there on the Big Island because it's a bank. I mean, you, you, you can store some precious cargo there. Yes, a seed bank is a like a safety deposit box it's where you can deposit seed and the way we set it up is that any landowner private landowners the state of hawaii we have all kinds of partners who want to save seed for the future so they pay a very very minimal annual fee it's two hundred dollars a year and they can bank as many seeds as they want so they can when they're out in the field they can collect and they can put put their seed in their safety deposit box. The owner is the, the landowner of that seed, and we just take care of that seed for them. So a lot of the seed is grown, you know, mitigation for wildfire or for, for with native seed. And then the food crop people are selling their seed and making it available. But all of these things are really important because what I try to recommend is that people also save some percent of seed, maybe 25 percent, for the next generation. Because I want to make sure we're leaving for the, the, these new seed growers and these new land managers that they have a resource. There were no seed banks in Hawaii when I started doing forest restoration almost 30 years ago. So. It's very, very important that we leave a resource for the next generation. You need the genetic diversity. You know, you need yes. the variety. That's right. Because if we're losing, if you talk about native species, if individual mother trees have d- genetic diversity, and if those trees die just by normal, you know, senescence and old age, or if extreme weather events cause them to die, then we lose that genetic diversity from that mother. So we we need to collect seed now when we have it and not wait. So that's what we do. We just keep going out and we keep looking and collecting. And your facility is described as off-grid. You know, you've got solar, hydrogen backup, gas. Yes, we have a solar-powered system. And we built it out of a 40-foot shipping container, and I was actually living in a shipping container that I made into a little cabin, (laughs) and I thought of the idea of making a seed lab in the same way. And so that enabled us to to build something that's climate-controlled, because the big thing about seed is temperature and relative humidity. So if you can control that, you can extend the life of seeds for decades or more. So that's, that's what we have. We have an off-grid facility. We also have seed banked in a large fridge at Rogers Ranch, um, at Hank Rogers' um, property at Puvava, and that is solar-powered with hydrogen backup that you mentioned. 
So this is really a community effort. You've highlighted the need, you know, the SOS, right? Save our seeds. Yep. But now you've got then you've got to marshal the the army, right? The I, I, I saw on your website you've got the uh, Amy Greenwell Garden Seed Collectors and, you know, folks that are out there doing their part. That's right. Each of these landowners or each of these participants collect seed. And, and it's really a wonderful opportunity for engaging volunteers because you can teach about taxonomy, you can teach people to identify species and to identify ripe seed, and people love to collect seed. So the more hands you have, the the easier it is, and you can get a lot of seed. And then the beauty of seed banking is you can store millions of seeds in a very small space. So it's it's a really good way to do conservation. It's a it's a, it's a conservation tool that is is really effective. How many seeds do you think you folks have banked over there? We've probably banked at a minimum of 30 million seeds. And our seeds are coming and going because we're using a lot of seed, too. And we use seed for restoration. And then the food crop seed is sold constantly. And so, and we keep expanding. So we're bringing in seed every, all the time, each month. And we're, we're trying to save a percentage and then get a lot of seed out. So it's millions of seeds. And is there anything else that you want to underscore to our listeners just about why the work that you do is so important for our future? Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate talking to you. And I I think that the main point is that everything starts with the seed. Whether you're growing food or whether you're doing large-scale restoration, we need to take care of the planet and we need to leave a planet that's, that's well healthy for the next generation. And so we need to focus on saving seed now. And the more people that can get involved in that, that's just a great help. And it's a very positive and life-affirming thing to do. And that was Joe Wagner who began the Hawaii Seed uh, Bank in Kona nearly 30 years ago. And that winds up our look at seed conservation. We hope you've enjoyed learning about the many hands across the state who are working to save our seeds. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Think you've got the chops to be on the air? HPR is looking for a new part-time host for our late-night music program, Bridging the Gap. Candidates should have a basic understanding of radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, perform well under pressure, and love music, of course. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Listen closely for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier we asked uh, you to name the song that preceded Hawaii Pono'i as the Kingdom of Hawaii's National Anthem. The song was adopted as the Kingdom's Anthem in 1866. It was written by Lydia Kamakaeha Dominus, who would later become Queen Lili'uokalani. It was done at the request of King Kamehameha V, who wanted a national anthem for the Hawaiian people to replace the British anthem of God Save the Queen. The Queen wrote 
that after it was written, the king admired the beauty of the music and spoke enthusiastically about the words. Take a listen to this modern version. By July 1867, the song was printed and available for purchase in Honolulu, becoming the first of Lili Uokalani's compositions ever published. It served as the Kingdom of Hawaii's national anthem until 1876, when it was set aside by King Kaulakawa in favor of his own composition, Hawaii Ponoi. If you recognize the lyrics and melody, then you will know that He Mele Lahui Hawaii is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Congrats to Malia Ka'i Barrett uh, from Honolulu. You got it right. Uh, that's If you have an idea for a, 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 a backyard quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Two years of the pandemic set back many things, including production of a documentary on the history of the Shaka. We talked to Steve Sue, who said following production, sadly three Kapuna, who had been a part of the film, had passed. The film is being screened in focus groups starting this month with hopes for a release next year. Here's Sue. Somebody had asked me the other day, what do you think when you see that, uh, that trailer? that you made. I go, you know, every time I look at it, it makes me so happy. It makes me so warm. Well, I happened to be out there when you were shooting the scene with the Hukilau, and it was just marvelous to see the community turn out for that. It Wasn't really that was. insane? It was beautiful. Yeah, and that had not been done in 60 years. And, you know, the idea of putting a thousand people on the beach, that's kind of big movie stuff. It's a thousand extras and 10 cameras and the drones and the water shots and uh, and it figures into the story. It's not gratuitous B-roll. It's, it's legitimately the, the foot of the story. It goes through the Hukilau. That's one of the main ways that the Shaka gets out to the world. So, yeah, we're super excited to reenact history and become part of it. Well, now, when we talked and you were shut down during the pandemic, you wanted to film this scene, you know, out on the beach, you know. <laughs> were you able to do that? Yeah, we did a, a different version of it. There's a military uh, sketch in this, and so we did this major drone shot where you fly up and you see a, a gigantic shaka made of people. And I don't want to give it away. I think it's just stunning when you see it. But um, yeah, it's it's a big shot. And you know, we, we've had these kind of big brain farts. What can we do to make the shaka come alive? And a lot of times my crew is like, you're freaking nuts, Steve. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm here to be nuts. And sometimes they will say, let's not go there. And other times they say, we will. An example is I wanted to do a shaka contest from the very get-go, and I didn't have any support. It was like, no, it's going to be so expensive. And why do you want to do that? And Because I, I knew that there was going to be, like, all these different forms of shakas for different contexts. There's no one way to do it. And I just felt it was going to be a great way to uh, make the concept of aloha and ohana um, and, and, you know, paradise be visual, come to life, be something that's emotionally connective. And, uh, and I think we succeeded. When you see the picture, it's like it, it makes you gulp at the end. And it's just wonderful to see how people can be so hopeful and be united. And, you know, it's just it's inspiring, especially post-COVID and post-acidic politics. And we've had a pretty tough dose of both in the last you know, decade, and I think it's a time for a hopeful story. Well, you know, you uh, are trying something different with this film, and you are getting feedback, right, uh, on yeah. uh, at, at this juncture, you know, because you haven't quite released it yet. Right. Uh, but you are um, kind of rolling it out to focus groups, so tell us about that. Well, yeah, so... I'm doing something that I, I don't think has been done before. Um, I'm doing six months of free sneak peeks on this film, primarily in the state of Hawaii. Uh, 
in some sense because I want Hawaii people to be first to see it, but also I want them to be the first to comment. So when you see a sneak peek, it's free, it's really part of testing process. It's not a completed picture. In some cases, you will see clips. You won't see the whole thing. Uh, we have an overabundance of great stories, so we have to kind of cull them down, and we're testing them. Um, but I, I kind of think of this as democratized filmmaking. So how can we involve all of our people to, to be part of the story? They can actually be in the film because we're going to be uh, putting up media walls and taking you know, some cameras to these events and shooting people because we have these kind of Gatling gun montages where there's lots of people, you know, quarter second, boom, boom, boom. So I can put thousands of people in this and I think it's gonna be super fun to see how many different ways can you shaka. Uh, so th there's that participatory element to it, but more importantly, there's a vetting element to it. Because if somebody comes forward and says, no, you know, you stated something that's not accurate, or I have even better evidence that uh, counteracts what you're saying. Well, I want that evidence. I want to be 100% correct. And I don't want to miss a story. There, there's at least six origin stories that we're covering. And they, they don't all align. And, and so our goal is to not decide which is the best, but allow the audience to decide. And part of this is, well, let the audience bring forward the evidence. And ultimately, the most important thing, I think, is the moral of the story, which is, you know, Aloha spirit. How do we share that with the world? How do we activate it? So that's why we're doing the picture. But the process of taking it through this next six months is literally, let's get the state juiced up on this story, get them helping with it, and we will make something that will stand the test of time that can educate the world, even beyond our, our waterly borders here. So you're engaging the community in these kind of listening sessions. <laughs> yeah, and we're the ones listening, right? They're going to watch it, but we're actually there to listen. The first one we did was uh, at Outrigger Canoe Club, and Alex, my director, and I sat outside, and we just watched the body English. And, you know, they filled out the exit surveys later, and we got their comments. And so we learned a lot because I've seen the footage, and, you know, it's that's not my role is to watch it again. It's like, I want to see how people react and what they're going to say and what they're going to contribute. And we've had a number of people that have already written in and say, well, I heard this story, that story. And my, my response is always, excellent. Now, can you show me anything that I can show in a film? You know, because I, I can't just throw hearsay. This is like a court case. I need mm -hmm. to find somebody that has direct testimony. I was there, I saw this, or here's a picture, a piece of archival evidence, or a piece of memorabilia that sort of thing. But after the next six months, and by the way, through the course of this six months, because we're still editing, you could see something very different six months from now than what you're seeing today. And it'll be compressed, it'll be sweetened, it'll be really perfected. But all through that period, we're open to people that if they want to help, they can sponsor. If a company wants to come in and get a logo in the end credits, they're still that's still available to them through the end of 2023. After that, we go to film festivals, have a premiere at a film festival. And this is why we call them a sneak peek, is we can't allow this to be called a premiere yet. It's not a distribution. It's not for money. It's, it's not soup yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we do a premiere at a festival, then we hopefully find a distributor that will then take it out commercially and show it to the world. And so if there are groups that want a sneak peek, how does that work? Yeah, they just go on our website and sign up. So um, no cost to them if they're on this island because then we don't have to travel. Um, we have to hand walk this picture in because I can't put it online because then it's open to the world and be copied and all that stuff. So I have to hand walk it in. We show it. We take the exit survey, which is an online form. So we put up QR codes and people just scan it on their phones. Because I'm there, I can do a Q&A. And people have been really enjoying the process of learning a little bit of the backstory of the film. and discussing even points of, you know, that are in the film. And so how many people have to be gathered uh, to sign up for this? A minimum of 50, and we prefer, you know, a nice projection environment. Um, we don't want people distracted and, you know, walking out of the room. And a proper theater is great. A lot of schools have theaters with projection, uh, a lot of community theaters. So I think schools are a great way to go, get the PTA together and, you know, uh, parents, teachers, uh, students, their friends, fine. We go all the way through December, so okay. there's plenty of time. And then do you have a target date for the release? Yeah, well, I guess the release date would be festival. We would premiere at a festival, and more than likely we'll premiere at a festival in the spring of next year. Our druthers would be some of the earlier ones, like Sundance is early, South by Southwest is pretty early. Camfest, which is in San Francisco, would be a good one for us. 
So there, there's various strata of, of festivals, and we don't have to be at like the top top tier because right. we're we're kind of a special interest story, and you know, but we'll go to one that we can be seen, which means that we're not overrun by the larger commercial productions. We're just like, yeah, that's a really appropriate thing for this documentary festival, and we'll go from there. That was Steve Sue, the force behind the documentary film Shaka: The Story of Aloha. And so we leave you with uh, the trailer on this Aloha Friday. How did you feel when the shaka started going global? Wherever I go, I will tell people where it came from because nobody knows. If you're not from Laia, you don't know. They don't know that, that shaka's not because he lost his fingers. They, they think that he's bending his finger like this. Uncle, what's the first time you heard the word shaka? Well, I was kind of disappointed. Because, <laughs> you know, the way that sign I said, Shaka, Shaka, Shaka? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not it, you know, that's not a, a Shaka. It's funny, we used to call Hamana Die, and that was it. The Shaka sign is a symbol for all people, but I love the fact that its birth is here in Hawaii. Of course, we knew it came from here, but how? How? Lippy is spender standing up at the corner going, Hey, Lippy is huh? He go up to the camera and he say, Shaka Brahra. That's the Oshaka. All over the island, kids played marbles. We didn't know about the Shaka, and we were doing it all the time. I think the wave sign started with Fossey. All those old timers lucky luck. Hey, right out of Kitty Popo. Hang loose. Hang loose came way later. It was slowly moving from town to town and then it was island-wide, statewide, and, and then it traveled. It became so commercialized. Now they put putting them all together, who wove that lay together and put them into one. But the wave, there's no question. He would wave to us like this. So all us kids do that, that's how it got catchy. The money used to say aloha, he used to go like this. Aloha. How is it that a little speck on Mother Earth has so much influence throughout the world? Just like these islands were, the Shaka sign was born and bred out of the ocean. The story is a lot richer and fuller than just the Shaka. When something amazing happens and you were born and raised in Hawaii, that's the reflex that you do. Shaka sign is tremendously important. It's an extension in my mind of the Aloha spirit. Hawaii and the Shaka has a lot to share. The world should take notice. does it for us on this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, we go from all about seeds to all about native snails. It is, after all, the year of the kahuli as we elevate our native tree and ground snails. Who knew we had so many in the past and now so few? Got a snail story? Love them? Hate them? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to the shows on the conversation page of the HPR website uh, or sign up for the conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. Our program is produced by Russell Sobiano, Lillian Song, and Stephanie Hahn. Backyard Quiz. His intro is thanks to John DeMello, theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.